This is Noah Kadner, and you're listening to the Virtual Production Podcast. Alex Proyas is an Australian film director, screenwriter, and producer. He's best known for directing films like The Crow, Dark City, I, Robot, Knowing, and Gods of Egypt. A longtime master of visual effects wizardry, Proyas is currently in pre-production on a horror movie to be shot within an LED volume. But his love of filmmaking and visual effects started at a very early age. My father took me to 2001 A Space Odyssey, a re-release of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But I was still really young. I was like six years old or something. And it just blew my mind. He had no idea what the hell the film was, and nor did I. I kept asking him questions like, what did it mean? You know, he couldn't work it out. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. What a film to blow a young person's brain with. And I mean, I didn't walk out going, I'm going to be a filmmaker, but I was like, wow, what an amazing world I've just been immersed in. Felt like I'd been to space as a result of that film. And I think I probably thought, okay, great, I'm going to be an astronaut now. But then over the next few years, I went more and more going to see movies and I just more and more realised that that's what I wanted to do. And so I convinced my parents to buy me a Super 8 camera for a birthday or something. And uh, at the age of 10, I started making films and I think I pretty much knew at that point that's what I wanted to do. So, Proyas attended film school in Australia and ultimately discovered a talent beyond traditional filmmaking. At that stage, I actually wanted to be an animator, which is why I ended up working for an animation company. They gave me a job in the days when it was cells, you know, plastic cells that they draw the animation on. My job was to clean the, the cells. They Xeroxed them and they come out all smudgy and you'd have to clean them to finesse the lines of the animation that the animator had drawn, you know. So that was my great job I had for about two months as I was applying for film school and I fortunately got in. I actually lied about my age. They wouldn't accept you if you were under 18, and I actually managed to get in at the age of 17. Proyas worked away at animation for a time, but soon found himself looking for additional avenues of expression with like-minded individuals. I formed a company with a couple of other film school students that I was at film school with. Because in Australia, there wasn't a lot to offer in the industry. You would either go and work at a TV station or something, or it wasn't like there was a clear path to being a filmmaker as there is in the industry in Hollywood, you know. So there wasn't a lot of very inspiring work being done at that stage in Australia. The films were very hit and miss. And so, you know, we decided to take our destiny into our own hands and we had a lot of friends in bands. This was like the early 80s and like everyone was in a band. And in Australia, that medium was booming. You know, there was a great live music industry and all the pub bands would be playing in all the pubs. And that's where a lot of the great Aussie bands came out of that period, you know. And so we thought, let's make music videos. MTV was happening. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. It seemed like a way we could actually earn our keep and do some creative stuff, and it kind of worked out for us quite well. We started off with friends in bands and doing them for, like, whatever money their parents would give us to make a music video, a couple of hundred bucks to buy some film stock and stuff, and eventually developed to, like, I ended up going to L.A. and making music videos for a very high-profile international acts, you know. 
Given his success as a music video director, Proyas looked to longer forms of filmmaking initially in the indie world. I already had made a feature film, a film called Spirits, which we made for a very low budget in Australia. And that came about actually through the music industry. We'd done some music videos for In Excess, the band In Excess, and their management were wanting to get to work on movies, develop movies, primarily for Michael Hutchins, who was the lead singer of In Excess. Do you like Michael Hutchins? Yeah. Yeah. I love him. Who was starting to move into the acting field and was acting in some movies, you know. So they were very keen to work with more filmmakers to make vehicles for Michael specifically. And so I had this 45-minute long short film. I'd made a bunch of shorts by this stage, and it was my stepping stone towards my first feature. And the inaccessible management read the script and said, great, fantastic, you know, Michael would be great for this. And I went, great, I think he's terrific. And I'd already worked with him, so I knew him, you know, well. And there was a particular character in that story that really would have worked great for Michael. But the funny thing was that the management, they didn't really know much about film, so they read this 45-page script and assumed it was a feature. And I had to explain to them, no, no, it's not a feature. Features are usually around about 100 pages or more, you know, minute per page kind of thing. And they basically said, um, well, can you turn it into a feature? And I said, sure, you know, <laughs> give me a week and it will become a feature, which is effectively what I did. I just added some stuff and we ended up with a feature. But ironically, Michael didn't end up being in the movie because in the period between them being interested in us actually being able to start shooting, the band had reached incredible levels of success and they were too busy playing Wembley Stadium at the time. But we still got to make the film partly financed by the band themselves, you know, through their management. With his mastery of visual effects and directing, Proyas came to the attention of Hollywood and was offered a major comic book superhero property at a time when there were very few in theaters, The Crow. The first digital effect I ever did was in The Crow. We actually did a couple of shots in The Crow on a Mac Plus or something. It was like one of the very first Macs, right? And I remember doing this one shot of the character running along the rooftops and we put in some rain or something. We did it digitally. And that was the very first time I'd ever experienced doing digital work. It was done at like NTSC resolution. But because there was a lot of rain and stuff and I wanted a sort of distressed look anyway, we kind of got away with it. For me, VFX was second nature because of my experience making music videos and commercials. And now the make-believe history of Black Star Beer. And we were already doing that stuff. I mean, we were doing visual effects in the digital space. And I've always been about world building too as a filmmaker because of that 2001 experience, I think. So to me, I very easily go in that area. So it felt very organic to me. I, I couldn't wait for it to improve and become more streamlined as we are now. And I think digital photography allowed us to get that final bit of streamlined quality there. I'd worked with one of the first red cameras because I would test all the cameras. Every film that came along since Lucas started using digital cameras, I guess, in the Star Wars trilogy, this second Star Wars trilogy in the early 2000s, I kept testing the cameras to see what they were like. And I remember testing those particular cameras, which I think were Sony cameras, and they were like 1080p or something, those cameras, and thinking, no, I don't want to use this stuff. You know, it's just not good enough to put on the big screen. 
But when the first red camera came along, I thought, well, finally, here we are. We've got something that I was really excited about. And I was doing a lot of still photography, digital photography at the time. And finally, I saw a moving version of what I was doing that I thought was great. And you had great control with it and it was everything I wanted it to be. And then, of course, the pipeline from photography to completion through VFX and post-production, it becomes a much cleaner way to work, I think, if you're in that digital realm. Although virtual production may be a relatively new concept to many today, it has its roots in motion capture in movies like Avatar. But even before that movie came earlier efforts to showcase digital anthropomorphic characters, such as Proyas's 2004 film, iRobot. So what exactly do you do around here? I make the robots seem more human. There was very little motion capture in that film. We shot with our actor in a green suit on the floor as we were shooting. Alan Tudyk, who plays Sonny, the character of the robot in iRobot, was there for the entire time working opposite Will. And sometimes we would shoot clean plates to remove him. Other times we would paint him out somehow. Much pain was experienced to remove him from certain scenes, you know. And then, of course, his performance was captured exactly, and it was keyframe animation. Digital Domain and Wetter as well did some work on the film. I'd go in and watch their first animation run, which was the grayscale robot on one side of the shot, of the frame, and on the other side there would be Alan in his fetching green leotard. And it was all about capturing the performance to the most minute detail. So I'd go in there going, no, no, his nose flares on frame 14. Can you make it more like that? It goes a little further, you know. This goes right down to body movement as well. It was like a rotoscoping process almost, where we tried to capture the soul of the performance. And I think they did a very good job doing it. And in some ways, it was almost better than tracking markers on the face and all that sort of stuff, because it, he could do the performance unencumbered by motion capture suits. And also it allowed us to work faster on the shoot. We didn't have to set up motion capture volumes for every scene that we had the robots in. So it was one less technicality to deal with when we were shooting. The technology supported that way of working well at the time, you know. But the other thing about iRobot that's really significant is that we were one of the first films to use virtual production. All this stuff came from not Mandalorian, as a lot of people believe. We've been doing it for a long, long time, right? It's just Unreal Engine and real-time LED screens and all that sort of stuff. That's what's happening now, which is making it more user-friendly. But we did one of the first scenes, well, certainly one of the first scenes I was involved with, and I believe one of the very first scenes overall that we did with this item called Encoder Cam, which was a way for you to see Will Smith running around a green world, move my physical camera around, which was still film in those days, and see on a monitor a very crude CG model that is being driven by the physical camera with all the little robots, all the thousand robots where he's running around through all. So then I could see if I drop the camera a little bit, I'm gonna lose him behind all the robots or if I go through and he's walking at a certain pace, I'll see him in the distance, you know. And it was really the only way to achieve that scene. 
there is no other way we could have done that scene without those techniques, short of building a thousand styrofoam robots or a thousand sea stands with ping pong balls on them or whatever. This was by far the best way of doing it. Proyas continued his steps into the virtual world with Gods of Egypt, a project that might have significantly benefited from LED volume virtual production. But at the time of that project, the technology did not yet exist. The film was almost entirely green screen. There's very little traditional photography. When there is anything traditional, it was on a set, but there aren't a lot of those scenes where we don't have the entire world created. So I don't know, maybe 85, 90% of the film is entirely virtual. I, Set, shall be your one true king. King of all Egypt! I mean, we did build bits of sets that we extended in some scenes. Usually anything that the actors have physical interaction with, obviously any furniture that they sit on or whatever is constructed. But there's very little that wasn't touched in some way by virtual production on that. We built our set pieces across multiple stages here in Sydney. And it's not like now you can almost bring everything to one volume and not physically move your unit. So your tracking and everything is all in situ and it's all worked out and calibrated. And you simply bring your set pieces in and change the environment. In those days, we were hopping from set to set. We got through the production one way or the other. And there were many scenes where the virtual was helpful. And it certainly was helpful in terms of being able to edit with something other than a green screen turned black or whatever, which is a horrible way to edit a film because you don't get a sense of the flavor and the atmosphere and you got to try and just focus on the actors and that's it. And obviously the world creates so much more. It can improve a performance if it's done properly, you know. So that was my experience there. And of course, now, you know, just only a few years later, the hardware and the software has gotten so much better that what we're doing now, we can, even when we're on green, we walk away with footage that is, I mean, you see everything. You see the quality of the light in the environment. I was saying 10 years ago, if it was a kid's TV show, that would be it. That would be the finished version. It would be even better than what they were doing in those days. But then taking that and finessing it, of course, is what gives you the best photoreal result. With his extensive experience in traditional visual effects, Proyas is in a well-informed position to evaluate the best ways to leverage virtual production. Green screen and LED, they both have their pluses and minuses. Green screen does certain things really well and other things not so well. And LED also has its merits and its downside. And one of the things it's really great at, I think, is if you've got your environment to be exactly what you want it to be and it's working really well, and particularly on closer shots where you don't see the actors connecting to the ground, etc., it's fantastic. You can do a lot of your coverage with LED, but then when you come to your wide shots and you want your actors to physically move through an environment or just sit wide on something spectacular, vista or whatever, green tends to be preferable. On Gods of Egypt, we did a lot of virtual environmental replacement outside, which is also a very powerful tool. When you're doing daylight exteriors, studios are not the best place to be to reproduce hard sunlight when your actors are moving over a great area. 
the way we tend to do it, if the actors are running in some sort of action scene with daylight and we want them to be in daylight, we usually put them on a treadmill so you get that hard source of light in that focused area. But if you've got action over a big area and there's a multiple characters all moving around a stage, there's a reason why a lot of the LED stuff, the Mandalorian, etc., it's overcast weather or dawn or dusk or whatever, because that's what LED is really great at doing. It's the VFX story from day one. It's like work out your shot, storyboard your shot, and then work out what the best technique is to do it. That hasn't changed, nor will it ever change. Depending on what the shot or the sequence or the film production dictates, we mix it all up and sometimes we'll go, you know what, nothing's going to be real world and we can do it. Let's go shoot it for real and add stuff to it, expand the environment out, etc, etc. Ready and action! Proyas sees LED volumes as a stepping stone to more and more interactive ways to experience entertainment. I honestly think it's an ever-shifting, ever-evolving process. Until you can stick something into the back of your head as a creator and dream a film and out it comes, there's no end point. There's a lot of steps before that, of course, you know. Um, I think we are moving more and more towards fully CG creations. I mean, to me, that's a no-brainer. Right now, we're making the interface between live action and virtual seamless. The real-time approach in LED screens and green screens is making it more user-friendly, easier to apply to any number of projects, more affordable, which is a really important part of it. One of the reasons I built my company is to democratize this sort of work so you don't have to be ILM and Disney to pay for it. We've just finished an indie film that's about six or seven million dollars and it's entirely virtual. And for me, that's a huge success story because the main reason I want to do all this stuff is to allow filmmakers, creators to do whatever they want, not limit their imaginations. For the first time we're making film as an art form be like writing a book or writing a piece for an orchestra, you know, a symphony. You don't ever think really about the logistics. You don't limit your imagination by budgetary concerns when you're writing a great novel. And so finally, I hope we're getting towards that point with filmmakers where they could do their art in the same way as other artists can. And that frees them from the tyranny of the studio investments. It's, it's, I mean, there's all sorts of great stuff that comes out of that, you know, and we're starting to see the tip of that iceberg right now. I had a film that I was making that didn't happen, a film based on Milton's Paradise Lost in the, around 2010, which basically fell over because we were going to do it all completely CG, effectively. And it was real state-of-the-art stuff that was being achieved at the time. But the budget kept going north, you know, and eventually this year went enough, we can't support this any longer. Um, and now that same film I could probably make for maybe a quarter of what the budget was. And to me, that's great. It means that projects that are really out there, both conceptually and technically, can be achieved now. So I think that's a really important part of all this. The moment this stuff becomes cheaper and better, everyone is going to do it. And that's what we're seeing in the virtual production space right now is every TV show is starting to adopt it, every sci-fi TV show. But eventually it's going to be 
not just sci-fi and fantasy worlds, it's going to become when it's cheaper and easier to shoot your domestic drama or whatever you're doing, rather than moving your unit around town, staying in one volume and pressing a button and up comes your room, your corridor, whatever, and it's seamless, then everyone's going to be using that technique. So, you know, technical progress, yes, the LED screens can get better. The contrast range can improve. A lot of technical things can improve, and they are improving. And the more we do, the more practitioners use these techniques, the more improvements are going to be made. Asked how newcomers interested in virtual production can get into the business, Proyas points to the ever-widening talent gap fueled by the strong interest in LED volumes and in real-time animation. We're struggling in Australia to get enough artists involved with these techniques, these new techniques. In the VFX industry, we struggle at the best of times, but now with this huge level of interest in this space, to find enough practitioners who understand these new applications, it's a struggle. We're already talking to educational facilities, a university here in Sydney about setting up a program to train filmmakers. And I don't see that diminishing. I think it's going to keep expanding and we're going to need more and more people to keep up with it. Because again, as these techniques become more used and filmmakers' imaginations can flourish and there's more and more interest in those science fiction, fantasy worlds, etc., more content will need to be created, therefore more filmmakers will need to be engaged. So I think getting into that area of expertise, knowing all the software that we use, I like people who are consummate filmmakers and people who are, even our very junior people who are working with us, they're interested in not just doing comps with Nuke or something. Their interest is far greater. You know, they take a very active interest in the shooting of the stuff, as well as the editing, as well as the writing, as everything. So my advice, I think, to filmmakers is to take that active interest because it's all coming together. You know, I mean, the, the whole thing with Heretic Foundation, my company, was it was conceived as a soup to nuts kind of production entity. It's not just VFX. It's the whole gamut of production and at the moment we're negotiating with some investors to build a very large stage facility but it's not just going to be an led volume and a green screen volume it's going to be editing rooms sound rooms a sound mixing suite a di suite the whole thing so all these people all these different levels of expertise are all going to be in the one space i hope in the same physical space because who knows what pandemics await but i hope we can all be there together and all feeding off each other and all making that spine of virtual production more and more streamlined and efficient. The more you know about the whole process in today's filmmaking world, I think the better you are to be able to serve your chosen task, you know. Listening to the Virtual Production Podcast. Special thanks to my guest, Alex Proyas. 
This episode was written and hosted by me, Noah Kadner. This episode was edited and mixed by Corey Abel. The Virtual Production Podcast is a co-production of The Virtual Company and Abel Cine. We love virtual production and would also love to work with you. So please visit our websites and drop us a line if we can help. You can find us at ablesine.com and thevirtual.co. The Virtual Production Podcast is brought to you in part by Puget Systems, an integrator specializing in high-end desktop systems perfectly suited to virtual production. Please visit them at pugetsystems.com. And by Blackmagic Design, one of the world's leading innovators and manufacturers of creative video technology, which also work very well with virtual production. Please also let us know if there's a subject or guest you want us to have on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please consider giving us a five-star review, subscribing, and telling all your friends about us. Thanks again, and see you next time.